Welcome to BFC Live, the daily video and podcast series of Business of Cannabis. BFC Live highlights the company's brands, people, and trends driving the global cannabis sector. Learn more at businessofcannabis.ca. Coming up, a BFC Live conversation with Hillary Bricken of Harris Bricken. She's an attorney in the U.S. working in the cannabis space. We wanted to connect with her about her work in the sector, what is happening today, and what might happen tomorrow. Hillary Bricken, thanks for being here. Hey, Jay. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's good to have you, um, not the least of which because it's um, still quasi-winter in Toronto, but if we think about uh, Southern California, it makes us feel like we're closer to summer. Indeed. Yes, we have no shortage of sunshine and good weather here. Um, How dare sometimes, you? <laughs> sometimes with the locals, I think it's bleaching their brains, um, but maybe that's a good thing during covid Yes, I think it is. Just ask the former president. Um, so uh, let's start. Let's start with how you got into practicing cannabis law, because it's been a while and it's still such a new industry. Talk a little bit about it, and then we'll get to sort of more today stuff. Certainly. Well, I've been in the field now for 10 years, and my solid claim is that I've never actually done an iota of criminal defense in the field. I have always only done the corporate, the transactional work, uh, and the M&A work, which is pretty interesting when an industry remains federally illegal. Uh, It's quite... Uh, just an innovative backdrop with lots of room for improvement when the feds could come crashing in at any given moment. For lawyers, it was not always the most attractive prospect because of criminal issues like aiding and abetting and conspiring to violate federal laws by basically probably what would be in the feds opinion, acting as consigliaries for these criminal syndicates. Uh, Whether or not it's legal under state law, the feds simply don't care. So 10 years ago, when I was in Seattle, where I got my start, I'm in Los Angeles now, we had a criminal defense lawyer approach the firm. And he said, you know, cannabis is basically a commercial enterprise in the state of Washington. And it's been that way since 1998. California went first in 1996. And it's really developed. And this is probably 2010, 2011, to the point where the clients are no longer worried about the criminal ramifications or endangering their civil liberties by openly violating federal law. Quite the contrary. They wanted help setting up their companies, doing joint ventures, dealing with their intellectual property and doing their transactional work so that they could buy and sell cannabis amongst themselves and ultimately to patient consumers because back then it was only medical cannabis. This criminal defense lawyer to his credit basically said, I do criminal work. I'm not a business lawyer. I don't want to be a business lawyer. I don't have the bandwidth at the time. Would a firm like yours want to explore the opportunity of being the business side of these enterprises? And then I was an associate, very young, very dumb, nothing to lose. And I just jumped on it um, because I was working for older partners who frankly didn't have the time or desire. And I said, what the heck? Uh, Why not? And to that point, I'd been doing some litigation, some transactional work but it was an opportunity for a young lawyer to really explore this incredibly dynamic area. And then I had no idea what the trajectory was gonna be like. And of course, I'm still in Seattle in 2012 when the state legalized this for adult use. And that was epic. Uh, I don't think I'll ever forget it. But the reason why this opportunity landed in my lap was because a criminal defense lawyer did not wanna wade into the business world. 
Yeah, it's funny. It's like being, because th those are not, those from the first meeting to when it went legalized, we're not a long time in terms of years, but in terms of mindset and societal shift. And there were probably lots of lawyers and firms in 2012 saying, oh, now we want to be in it, but you were already there. And we've seen similar things here. Yeah. Correct. And I think, you know, our firm was very fortunate. We took a lot of risk. It was scary from an ethics perspective, whether or not the state bar would come after you for being in this precarious position, because in the States as an attorney, you take a state bar exam. You're sworn in by your Supreme Court in your state. You don't take a federal bar exam, yet you're still having to adhere to federal law, obviously. So lawyers would find themselves in very weird ethical positions just by virtue of representing a client and telling them what state law was. And then, of course, you have the criminal aspect where is it a crime for a lawyer to advise a cannabis company on entity selection, right? LLC here in the States or a corporation. The feds would say yes. Whereas right now, probably with the current political climate, the states would say, no, it's not. Um, and not that they would get behind lawyers to defend them, but really when it comes to criminal prosecution and prosecutorial discretion, what the feds typically look at is the lowest hanging fruit. So they spared the lawyers, but they typically tend to go after the firsthand drug traffickers. Unfortunately, the people that are on the ground doing the business day to day in the cannabis industry. Yeah. And you're speaking about it, obviously, in past tense, because it's your career you're talking about and what was happening in Washington and later in California or well, same time in California. But you, even states that are recently passed measures in the fall, I'm naming, I think it was South Dakota, where their state bar was actually saying, nope, you can't practice anything like, like it's, it's all the way back to 2010 in Washington. It's bizarre. And, and that just goes to show the strength of states' rights compared to our federal government. And what's happening here, what's being produced is a patchwork quilt of regulations. So it is absolutely true that in Washington, you could find a cabal of law firms that are now experts in this area, doing it all the time. It's a big part of their book. You go you know, hundreds of miles east into the Dakotas, no lawyer would touch this in their right mind that wasn't already doing criminal defense. And the state has purposely set it up that way. They're not the first. Montana preceded them where they had this long legacy of medical cannabis, but they didn't want professionals assisting the people who were undertaking the cannabis activity, which to me is very ludicrous and you know true to form back in Washington when we have this legal penumbra around ethics and whether or not lawyers should be assisting and advising the regulators themselves, the Washington State Liquor and Cannabis Board, there are three of them at the top, they basically said, we want the lawyers to participate. These people are shooting themselves in the foot constantly. They can't interpret the law. They shouldn't have to. They should be able to hire attorneys. So it really just depends on the state, which at this point, given where things are going federally in the political climate, it's just mind-blowing that you would have a state that would say, We'll let the people legalize it, decriminalize it, or medicalize it, but we're not going to give you any help to get the experiment off the ground. It's pretty hollow. It's it's not great. It's also bad business and legal practice. Like it's all those things wrapped up in almost subverting what voters want. I guess you can make an argument. Like it's. Oh, I think that's a fair statement. And the thing is, and this is why it's so ironic in the United States, a vote of the people is supposed to mean something in a democratic society. Almost all of these laws that have passed for adult use at least have been by people's initiative. It's the strongest form of direct democracy in action. So I think 
subvert is the perfect verb. That's what legislatures tend to do, bars tend to do, because they're paying so much credence to federal law, which they are allowed to do as a state. But as far as really undertaking in earnest a democratic experiment, which that's what the states are supposed to be, we're supposed to be these little laboratories of democracy, it just makes no sense. Yeah, and, and, it's, and increasingly it's not even close. Like the voters and the people are so far ahead of the regulators, the elected officials, and the bar associations in some cases, um, the people are already there. And we actually see it in Canada where the people have already moved on from this issue of legalization and some of the regulators have not and there's still some pretty damning regulations and oversight and all that, that's super burdensome, but the people are already done. Like their mind is made up. This has, they, they either like it or don't, but they know what's happening and they don't want to stop it and it's happening, right? And it's, it's just a weird position to be in. It's the same situation here. Um, you'd think that there would be bigger fish to fry, but certain regulators and legislators really still want to die on this hill of legalization um, when the will of the people indicates pretty clearly in almost all states and at the federal level that they're tired of the war on drugs as it applies to cannabis, especially when compared to alcohol, other prescription drugs. I'm with you. I think the ship has sailed. I think it's very foolish for these states not to equip these would-be entrepreneurs with the tools they need to succeed, given the fact that there's this federal conflict, which applies to taxes, banking, the ability to raise capital. It invades everything. So why hamstring them further by not enabling them to secure a competent counsel? And what ends up happening is that the less competent lawyers, the lawyers that have nefarious interests and know how to play that game with the client and the government, they end up sliding in. And it does nobody a good service. The regulators get frustrated because these applicants don't know what they're doing or they're getting bad advice. And that's because these good law firms with solid attorneys, they don't want anything to do with it because the state has set up a system to disincentivize participation. Yeah, it's all wild and it's happening in real time and you have a front row seat, which is great. Uh, which is why, because it, it's, it's not often you live, I would think, legal or in the legal profession or otherwise, that you live through sort of pretty sweeping societal change and you're, you have a hand in it, uh, which brings us to, we're actually doing work with you and our firm here, uh, Torque and Mains, uh, where we'll be presenting an event, uh, cross-border cannabis event on April 16th, which we are keen to be working with you because all the things you just said about the state-to-state -state patchwork sort of in regulations is happening at the same time as like serious conversations, certainly around banking are happening in DC, notwithstanding the fact that people got canned from the White House for <laughs> cannabis use. Um, but, but all this I think is why we wanna sort of connect with you because like, can we look ahead? This is the question. Can we look ahead to a time where we actually have like a normal operating North American industry? I think we can look ahead. Normal, though, is not the qualifier I would use. I would say regulated, uh, because the way that this has been set up, and you are right, I have a front row seat from the point that it was actually truly commercialized, basically, in the mid, kind of early 2000s to now, in that we are taking politically, socially, emotionally, healthcare-wise, a path 
with cannabis, and I'm not talking about hemp or hemp-derived CBD, that's a totally different animal on a completely different legal track, but with actual cannabis, it is shaping up almost identically to what our country has done with alcohol. And that's incredibly informative. And I would not call our alcohol regime in the States normal because it's the same issue, that patchwork quilt of regulations where let's say in Seattle, Washington on a Sunday, you can get a Bloody Mary at any time of day, go down South to Georgia, Marietta, Georgia, you probably can't buy liquor on a Sunday. We're gonna see that same path very likely for cannabis and we know that by looking at initial drafts of the MORE Act, and I'm not talking about the Safe Banking Act, but specifically with the MORE Act, where the feds are bound to relinquish master control over a very bare bones federal framework that regards taxation and reporting, right, for taxes and compliance. But they're gonna let the states go with it, and they should, because the states are better positioned to know the health and welfare of their own citizens and to decide what's appropriate in that state framework that is already incredibly detailed in over more than half the states at this point. So the feds are not gonna reinvent the wheel. So normal, probably not. Highly regulated, definitely. Completely variable from state to state, forever. Well, county to county in Atlanta, I went to school in Atlanta. It was county- There you like, go, you know. Like you could buy alcohol here and not here on a Sunday, but I'm from Massachusetts and there are still some very old laws in the books that restrict certain activity on Sunday. Growing up, there were yes. no stores were open on Sunday. Like, you know, alcohol, I think now you can buy on Sunday, but only afternoon. Like it's Red Sox games that happen uh, during marathon day. You can't serve booze before noon. So the game starts at 11. Yes. You, can, you can only buy alcohol basically between the third inning and the sixth inning. Like it's- it, well, this and is, all, the, all those things, we have the template here. Right. There's no denying it, right? And I'm not saying that prohibition is similar to cannabis illegality at the federal level, they are different animals, but they're the most comparable when we're talking about these commodities that were once contraband kind of emerging into a legal industry. And it's gonna to touch on everything from THC content to packaging and labeling to the distribution network, whether you can be vertically integrated, it will all be different from state to state. And even to your point, local municipality to local municipality, cities will be different than the incorporated counties that they're placed in. Um, and you will have different laws accordingly. And you know, you were talking about your college days in Massachusetts and Georgia and the difference there. Um, my husband was in the military. He was stationed in Fort Lawton, Oklahoma, only state in the union I've ever been in where the alcohol content was probably three to 5% less than you would find commercially in other states. And that kind of blew our minds that that was a state law that the alcohol couldn't be as potent um, we're going to see that again with cannabis and it's going to be across a variety of products, which is just incredibly bizarre. Well, we're going to get to many of these things, some of these things, certainly the framework by which we'll talk about it on the 16th, but I want to, I'm, I'm so excited for that and I could go on and on just about, well, Oklahoma, yes, but also Utah has their own liquor, you know, liquor laws too. Like it's, right. but thinking about applying some of those same uh, not even approaches, but how it how it is now with alcohol. Think about how it could be with cannabis. Makes it uh, it's going to be a good time for lawyers. So that's good. Um, but also, it's going to be a tough industry to cr not even cross state lines legally, but like launch brands in Oklahoma potentially or Georgia or you know it just er these things make you need to be a very good operator compliance wise operationally. Um, 
And that, uh, you know, does favor really good operators, also favors obviously people with money. And it also favors local, which is actually quite interesting. Um, maybe yeah, we'll some of these states will keep in place their protectionist and more cottage regulations. For example, Washington State six month residency requirement to participate as an owner. And that is purposeful to ensure that there's not this windfall to outside interests, which can be positive, as opposed to where I am in California, there's no residency requirement, very few barriers to entry, no liquidity requirements. We basically let anybody come in to try to start these things to promote the experiment and generate tax revenue and tax capture. So even those two on the same coast are extremely different, but we will see states that will retain this more cottage environment. And how does that happen? Lobbying and private interest groups, um, which lobbying, depending on who you're talking to, can be a dirty, dirty swear word. Um, other people, it's business as usual. And I know we'll talk about this on the 16th, but the interests that are knocking on the door of the House and the Senate right now in DC are probably nothing anybody would have contemplated maybe 10 years ago but it's Ultria, Constellation Brands, which I know you guys are familiar with them, obviously in Canada, um, they'd be a big splash here in the States because none of these big companies have jumped in with both feet on the trafficking side. You have Convenience Stores of America participating with lobbying. Um, this has now gone from zero to 100 in about 60 seconds with these interests at the door. So when you talk about the sufficiency of a national infrastructure, that does not really exist right now, even with our multi-state operators, because they have to go from state to state to state getting licensing and or doing intellectual property licensing deals with their brands. But what they don't have, what nobody has, is interstate commerce. So the concept of a national distributor, it's not there yet. But the minute that federal veil drops, yes, I would say explosion is an appropriate word. And whether or not these bigger operators like an Altria or Constellation Brands will use their established networks or not, we don't know, we can't say, but I estimate again from an efficiency perspective and doing lots of business deals from start to finish with distributors, manufacturers, toll processing agreements, third party agreements for processing, et cetera, they're going to use their existing network. And what else might be troubling or inspiring is who's gonna get in on the retail game People should not be shocked if they begin to see cannabis brands in CVS, Whole Foods, even places like Anthropology, high-end clothing stores that want to carry some consumer products. This will be the new competition on the block. And that does not mean that the existing operator cannot participate, be collaborative, and compete. But to your point about needing to have some capital to participate, that is probably only going to get worse unless there is lobbying at the federal and state level to ensure that there's a price point at which everybody can participate. Going to be tough to do in a capitalist society. Well, Hillary, this has been great. And I think uh, uh, planting the seeds for a great event on the 16th, but also um, allowing us, hopefully, with, with your schedule permitting, be able to talk through these things as they happen in real time, much like it would have been great to connect with you in Washington in 2010 and follow the whole thing through. But we'll start in 2021 and we'll, we'll go from here. How's that sound? It's never too late um, and things continue to happen. So I am on my toes just like everybody else. Great. Hillary, thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you on the 16th. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> 
That was Hillary Bricken of Harris Bricken talking to us about being a lawyer in the age of legalization. Thank you for joining us on B of C Live today. We're able to do what we do thanks to our ongoing partners, including Cannabis at Work, Cannabis Benchmarks, Can Delta, Headset, Gallagher, and Torque and Maine.